But open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we will finish up our exploration of these uh, first two verses that we find within this model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the most often quoted and probably the most memorized passage of Scripture that we have. And so I want to read this together with you. I think I remember to put it on screen. I did. So let's read this together as we continue our exploration of these verses, reading from the New American Standard Bible. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we spent a couple of Sundays looking at this, and we're going to continue and complete this today. So as we explore this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, as they had heard him pray and recognized that his praying was unlike anything they had ever heard before and anything that they had ever practiced, they asked him to teach them to pray. And he said, pray then in this way. We're focusing on just these first two verses and the the three key phrases that we find there. So as a very quick review, the first key phrase is, Hallowed be your name. It relates to our bringing glory to the name of God through the lives that we live. So our motivation for bringing glory to his name is based upon who he is. He is the great God, the one and only true God, the God who is beyond our ability to define or describe. He is so great that our vast vocabulary fails to describe Him in His fullness and with completeness. Everything that we would say about who He is, the attributes of God, would be true And all of the attributes that we could quote from memory are consistent of who God is all at the same time. And yet these still fall short of fully describing who He is. We get a sampling of what this praise of praiseworthiness of God is like as we read what David said in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11. David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said... Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. I would imagine that David, as he is reciting these truths that he knows to be true about God, comes to the realization that all that he has said still does not fully describe who God is. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been praying, when you've been laid low before the Lord, and you pour out your heart to Him, and you just run out of words to say that describe the greatness of the God that He is. And so as what we would read in the New Testament, we just groan, knowing that our Father understands what our heart attempts to communicate about who He is and our love for Him. We would read in Isaiah, as God would say of Himself, 
My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Knowing that to be true, it confirms in my heart the belief that I have that we cannot adequately and completely describe who He is because every word that we could come up with still fails to completely describe who He is. So our motivation for bringing glory to His name is based upon the great God that He is, but it is also based upon what He has done for us in sending His one and only Son to die on the cross in our place so that we could be made acceptable to Him. Sometimes we look at the cross and we say, yeah, Jesus died for the sins of many. But do we ever say, Jesus died in my place. I deserve to be there. It is my sin. It is my rebellion. It is my apathy. It is my hatred. It is my unwillingness. I deserve to be there. And yet He Himself died in our place. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In light of who He is and what He has done for us, how do we bring glory to the name that is above every name? Well, we've looked at this and we've talked about this and we do this by by becoming who He has saved us to be and by doing what He has saved us to do. He didn't just save us from our sin so that we would be acceptable to Him. He saved us so that we would be a part of building His kingdom and that we would be a people who reflected the very One who saved us. God didn't save us because heaven was getting a little low. He saved us with a purpose. He doesn't need us in heaven. He just desired to save us so that we could be in heaven. There are many, many scriptural examples of how we are to bring glory to God through the lives that we live. We talked about this briefly yesterday in our men's breakfast, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in view of who God is, in view of what God has done for us on the cross, present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You worship God by willingly laying your life on the altar as a living sacrifice for Him to do with what He desires, with what He pleases. And that is how we worship Him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what does this look like? What does this renewing of our mind look like in our lives? Well, in Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself as you really are. Now, I had to get reading glasses at one point in my life. And one day when I put those reading glasses on, I looked in the mirror, I went, oh my, I didn't realize that's exactly what I looked like. And the closer I got, I didn't like what I saw. Now, Perry, bless his heart, tells me, you're such a good looking guy. Well, Perry, you know, that's Perry. 
But when we look at ourselves as we really are in Christ, we are His righteousness. His holiness and His perfection has been placed on us. And that is who we are in Christ. That is our position in our relationship with God. But who are we in practice? Do we look at ourselves in the mirror and not like what we see? You see, the realization is, is that you and I must be conformed to the image of Christ so that the world sees Him, not us. All of our faults, all of our flaws, all of our failures, all of the blemishes that we so quickly see, the world needs to see Christ. And it is God's purpose that we be conformed to His image so that others may see Him through us. We read this last time, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. In reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, you willingly take it off and put it down, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, willingly and intentionally... Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Here's the bottom line. If we don't intentionally put off and intentionally put on what the world will see is a slightly polished version of our old self, which can talk the talk but doesn't really walk the walk very well. And that's not what the world needs to see. That's not what God wants the world to see. And we have been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. There are many, many more examples that we could look at that describe how our lives are to bring glory to God. And I'm sorry if this is kind of a repeat of a repeat, but I don't think we can ever stop celebrating the glory of who God is and how we ought to strive to live up to that. But that's where we find ourselves today. So in accordance with Matthew 6, 9, we are to pray that we bring glory to His name. Second key phrase is your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is experienced spiritually through the person and the work of Christ. When Jesus began His public ministry, He began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus in Himself and through His work brings to, the, brings to man the kingdom of God through our faith in His finished work on the cross. That is why Jesus said, Repent, because I, who represent the kingdom of God, am in your midst. So we need to repent from our sin. We need to turn to Him and receive the gift of salvation, which in turn brings us into His eternal kingdom, described in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So this present spiritual kingdom of God will become a future physical kingdom when the Father consummates our salvation at the very end of time and creates a new heaven and a new earth that we will inhabit with Him for all eternity. We read in Revelation 21.1, 
John the Revelator said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. So we will dwell with Him in a recreation of Eden, and we will see Him as He really is. We will be in fullness who we were saved to be. So we are to pray that we bring glory to His name, and we are to pray for His kingdom to come fully within His children as we await for the coming of His eternal future kingdom. That's our review. So this is the third key phrase that we look at today, Your will be done. Now this was a fascinating study for me, and I hope that it is fascinating for you. When we talk about the will of God, I have generally discussed the will of God as a very general will. God wants all people to do this, and a very specific will, where God has called you specifically to do this thing. But there is actually two wills of God, or two meanings to God's will. This is the part to me that is very fascinating. And I don't know that I've ever read it quite like this before, but it was a bit of a light being turned on for me. So the reason it is important for us to break down what the will of God means is because Jesus taught us to pray for His will to be done. So if we want to pray for God's will to be done, we need to know what God's will means. So there are two meanings for this. Letter A, it is His will of decree. When we talk about His will of decree, we are talking about His will which cannot be broken, which will always come to pass, and we might also say that this is the sovereign will of God. This is an unbreakable, unstoppable will of God. We see this described in some fashion in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Now, as a bit of a preface to this, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king of the day. He was an evil man. He abused the Israelites. He mistreated them. And he had such a power that it could never, ever be challenged. And he exerted that power in a very unkingly way over his subjects. So here is the most powerful king that the region knew, Nebuchadnezzar. And he was finally broken by God. And he ate grass like the cattle. And when he had finally looked to God, and a sense came back to him, Scripture says that he ate cattle, he ate grass like the cattle, and his his hair grew like the birds of feather, and his claws were like birds of prey. When he came to his senses and he looked to God, this is what he declared. He declared all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That doesn't mean that people are worthless. It means that people really have no power to stand up against God's sovereign will. We can't stop what God has decreed. But He, God, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? You see, it is the sovereign will of God or the decreed will of God That man can never thwart. That man can never stop. And God's sovereign will 
is being executed in our world in ways that you and may you and I may not see and we may not understand. And there comes a day in the future when the unthinkable happens and our world is shaken and we go, Oh my, look what God has done. Look what God has put an end to. Look what God has inaugurated in our experience. We look in our current events today and we see one of the most powerful countries in the world, Russia, trying to run roughshod over the country of Ukraine. And to many, many people of the world, it looks like that is a done deal. There's nothing that can be stopped. And yet God's sovereign plan is still being executed, even though we may not know what that is. There are numerous examples of where we see the decreed will of God lived out amongst people. For example, go all the way back to the book of Exodus when the nation of Israel had been in slavery to the nation of Egypt for some 430 years. And Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt was the most powerful force in all the world. But there was absolutely nothing that Pharaoh could do that was going to stop God's decreed will. What was that will? That he was going to free his people and that he was going to establish them as a nation. And so what God told Moses, whom he had called in a self-exile because of his guilt in killing another man, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he says, as recorded in Moses 3.8, I have come down to deliver them, the Israelites, from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now what does that mean? It means that the nation of Israel was powerless to free themselves, but God had decreed, God in His sovereign will had said, you will let my people go. And in a way they went. Isn't that exactly right? And so God told Moses exactly what was going to happen. But that promise didn't end with Moses. Moses died and the mantle was passed to Joshua. And so Joshua was the one who was going to see the conquest of the promised land that God had promised all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. And here's what God says to Moses in Joshua 3. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have, past tense, given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. What do we see there? We see the decreed will of God that when you cross over the Jordan River, everywhere you travel, I have already given that land to you. There's no man that could ever stop that. And so as a nation of Israel... And faith and obedience marched through the promised land that God was going to give them. They came to the city of Nineveh, right? Big walls, strong and powerful fortress. They had spearsmen and archers all along the walls. And what were they commanded to do? Just march around that thing seven times and once a time blow on the trumpet. And on the seventh time, blow on the trumpet seven times. And what happened? The walls imploded. Not Nineveh, Jericho, I'm sorry. 
the walls of Jericho crashed down. You see, the decreed will of God could not be stopped. He had promised a land to His people. Now, the most prominent example in the minds of Christians ought to be what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read in Matthew 26, 39, Jesus went on a little way beyond His disciples and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, Your decreed will, yet not as I will, but as You will. What was God's decreed, what was God's sovereign will? That Jesus would become the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus knew exactly what that decreed will was. And this took place exactly as God had determined in His sovereign will. In Peter's very first sermon, as he gave a defense of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we read this in Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan, And foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, it was God's plan, his decreed will, that Jesus die, and there wasn't anybody that was going to stop it. Nobody. Because God had willed it. So here is an important thing to remember. This is difficult, but this is what we must remember. What we must remember. God sometimes chooses to use sinful people to carry out His sovereign will. Let me repeat that. God sometimes chooses to use sinful people to carry out His sovereign will. Now, when Israel sinned and were guilty of idolatry, And God said, I'm going to punish you. Who did he use? He used the barbaric Assyrians. He used the godless Babylonians to carry out his decreed will. Here, as it relates to the death of Jesus, Herod, Pilate, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, all were sinful men, all sinned in killing Jesus, and yet they were still used by God to accomplish His decreed will. Now here's where it gets very, very difficult for you and I. God sometimes uses sinful people to carry out His decreed will with us. Now wait a minute. That's not right. That's not fair. It shouldn't be that way. Why does it have to be that way? Well, if this is what God did with His one and only Son, why would it be any different for us? Here's an example that we can find, 1 Peter 3.17. For it is better if, if God should will it so, His decreed will, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, when we do wrong, we recognize that we we are justly being punished for doing wrong. Isn't that right? But here, Peter says, it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right. What is suffering for doing what is right called? Persecution. 
Sometimes it is God's decreed will that Christians will be persecuted for their faith. We don't like it. We don't think it ought to be that way. We hope it ends very, very quickly. But God has a purpose in the decreed persecution of Christians. Now, we could talk about this for for hours and hours. Here's a question. Is the persecution of Christians sin? Absolutely it is. Is it wrong? Absolutely it is. Do we like it? Absolutely we do not. As a footnote to this, did you know that in the places in our world where persecution is the fiercest, Christianity consistently grows the fastest? Isn't that counterintuitive? Don't we think naturally that, well, if, you know, Christianity can just be whatever we want it to be and everybody can live it out however they want to live it out, that Christianity would be appealing and exciting and everybody would love it in that way. You know, here in America where we have religious freedom, Christianity is not growing at all. But in the parts of the world where persecution is the fiercest, Christianity is growing the fastest. So in the same way that God willed for Jesus to die by the hands of sinful men, according to His sovereign will, He sometimes wills for Christians to be persecuted at the hands of sinful men. So when that happens, we know that God is good, and God is faithful, and God is loving, and God has a purpose for this, and I just got to be faithful to that so that I can see God's purpose lived out through me. And if I never see it lived out through me, that's okay. I still trust in Him. We often find it difficult to believe that God wills for us to suffer unjustly. Look what Paul says here in Ephesians 1, chapter 11. Now, to be fair, to be honest, this passage talks about the rich blessing that is ours in Christ. For we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul goes on to identify and, and, and uh, enumerate each of these blessings as God prompts him. And then all the way down in verse 11, we find this little truth tucked into this verse in such a way that we probably don't even recognize what it says. Verse 11 says this, We have obtained an inheritance. Yay, we like inheritance. That means good things, right? Somebody's given me something. Yeah, my rich uncle, my father, whoever. It's an inheritance. Here's what it says. We've also obtained an inheritance, which is a part of this rich blessing, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now, on the good side, according to the counsel of His will, He's giving us all these good things. But it also means that God sovereignly decrees things in our lives because all things are after the counsel of His will. Yikes! (laughs) But that's the reality. God is in control of everything. And sometimes He allows us to be persecuted or to suffer. Now, there are many other verses that show us something about the sovereign will of God 
and that God's decreed will extends over the universe to the smallest details of nature and of human decision. Very, very quickly, we read in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? They're almost meaningless in the economy of the sacrificial system of Israel. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, meaning God knows. God allows it. Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it is every but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So the decreed sovereign will of God cannot be stopped. It cannot be broken. It will always come to pass. Now hear me very carefully. This does not mean that everything that happens to us is the decreed will of God. But certainly everything that happens to us has been allowed by God. It isn't necessarily His will, but He has allowed it. Let me give you an example. Is it God's decreed will that children would grow up in a a neglectful, abusive home where their parents would smack them around and burn them with things and beat them within an inch of their life? Is that God's decreed will? Absolutely not. But for reasons we can't understand, apart from the sinfulness of man and the curse of the fall that we live under, sadly, thousands upon thousands of children have this kind of experience. God didn't decree that to happen. It happens because of the sinfulness of man. So not everything that happens to us is God's quote-unquote plan for us, but everything that happens to us, God allows for reasons that we cannot fully know or understand or explain, but we rest in the reality that God is in control of it all. Letter A, we have His will of decree. Now, letter B, we have His will of command. The will of command is very simply what God commands us to do. This is the will of God that we can disobey and fail to do. Now, let me ask you a question. How many commands are there in the Bible? Uh Uh-oh. Well, we have the Ten Commandments, right? That's the most celebrated in the Old Testament. You know, the Ten Commandments, everybody's seen them, and there's great arguments about having them rid from the public square and out of the courthouses and all that kind of stuff. We know what the Ten Commandments are. But some say that there are an additional 600 laws in the Old Testament. Some would estimate even more than that of the laws that have been given through Moses as it relates to ceremony and ritual and worship and all that other kind of stuff. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, there's this guy by the name of Finnis Dake, and he has come up with over a thousand commands in the New Testament, and he has put them in 800 different categories. Things like abstain from and ask for and be something and avoid and do not be, etc., etc., etc. So if we take this as truth, that there are over a thousand commands in the New Testament, oh my gosh, what does that mean? Everywhere I go, I'm just going to be wrong. I'm going to fail. So let's do this. Let's boil it down to the essential. 
the most essential command of God, right? Let's make it really, really easy. Let's not get caught up in the numbers and the categories and the complexity. Let's make it incredibly simple. So during one of his teaching sessions, a Pharisee asked Jesus with the purpose of tricking him and finding a reason to bring accusation against him. He said in Matthew 22, verses 36, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he rubbed his hand together and said, I know there's at least 600 of them, and we're going to get him this time. We're going to catch him. We're going to put him to shame. So it's a very good question. So out of all the commands in the Bible, which one is the most important? Well, love the Lord your God with all you are. Verse 37 and 38, as Jesus answered the Pharisee who attempted to trick him up, he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, you'll notice that's in all caps, which means it's a direct quotation or compilation of something that someone has said in the Old Testament. And this is a portion of what is contained in the great Shema. Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall, da-da-da-da-da-da. And so they would write portions of the Shema, and they would put it in phylacteries and put it around their forehead, and they would put it on their arms, and they would wear it everywhere they went, and they would recite it twice a day. And Jesus boils down all the commands to the most essential that you are to love God with all you are. That's pretty easy, right? When we love Him this way, it is really good for us. That's what Greg Flegel tells me anyway. When we love Him, this is really good for us. Loving God with all that we are. Now, Jesus uses the terms heart and soul and mind. And our inclination is to categorize those things and to start make lists. And that's not what Jesus means at all. What Jesus means by using these terms is you love Him completely. With everything you have, with all that you are, leaving nothing away... You're to love God with every part of your being. Why? Why would Jesus boil it down to this as the greatest and the foremost command? Because loving God this way centers our lives upon the highest priority in all of life. It means we are kingdom-focused It means that we are not prioritizing self or worldly things. It means we love most the one who loved us first. Before you had any capacity to have any affection for God, to have any idea about what it might mean to love God, He loved us. That's what the Bible teaches us. We love Him because He first loved us. How different would our attitudes and our actions be if we truly loved God with every part of our being? (laughs) 
Some Christians spend more time and energy focused on possessions and leisure and entertainment and sport and any number of other things than they do, than I do, in loving God with all that I am. You know, I remember some years ago, some of you might remember this, there was the royal wedding over in England. And for reasons I fully, I can't fully understand, many people in America were just excited and they were buzzed. It's going to be a royal wedding. It's a royal wedding. It's a prince and a princess. That happens all the time in parts of the world you and I don't know anything about. What's the big deal? And so these people who were just infatuated with the royal wedding set their alarm for 3 o'clock in the morning and they got up because they had to watch it live. I can't can't DVR a royal wedding. I got to see it as it's happening. It's live in the moment. And yet these same people struggle to get up an hour early to read God's Word, to commit their lives to Him in prayer, to agonize over the sin that's so prominent in their lives. Isn't that sad? What does that say about us when we are so much more preoccupied with stuff than we are in loving God with all that we are? Assuming we all sleep eight hours a day, and I know that some sleep far less than that, and some might sleep more than that. Let's just make an assumption that you sleep for eight hours. That means that you and I have 16 hours to divvy out amongst any number of things that would occupy our time. How much of that time do we spend in His Word? How much of that time do we spend on our knees in prayer? How much of that time do we spend meditating on the great God that has loved us and saved us? How much time do we spend praying for the missionaries who are suffering persecution in the parts of the world that you and I may never see so that the gospel would go forth? I can't get up an hour early. I got a busy day. I got to be at work at such and such a time, and I got such and such a thing to do. And I'll get home at this hour, and then I've got to get a meal, and then I got to go to this meeting, and I got to do this thing, and then I got to have some time to unwind and relax and rest. And you know, we can't go to church vacation weeks, and we got family in town, so we can't come to church for that. There are so many things that we allow to become more important to us than Him. And we rationalize and justify so many of these decisions because because we've convinced ourselves that I need all of that more than I need to prioritize Him. We're, We're all guilty of it. We all do it. And then we wonder why our attitudes and our actions are the way they are. Well, the bottom line is this. If we really and truly love God, And if we really and truly desire to love Him with all that we are, then you and I will desire to obey God. That's exactly what Jesus said is true in our love for Him. John 14, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So our obedience proves our love for him. Now let me say this. We together will never 100% of the time obey all that God has told us to do. When we choose 
to not obey. We are choosing not to love Him. That's what we're doing. We're choosing to love ourselves. We're choosing to love our sin. We're choosing to love something in the world or of the world more than we love Him. We all need to be cleansed from that. We all are captured by those things in ways that we may not fully recognize, but it is true. And if you and I want to fully love Him with all that we are, we must spend time praying that God would show us what these things are, because God, I don't want that to be true of me. I want to love you with all that I am and demonstrate that through my obedience to you. So, the first of the commands that Jesus boils all of the commands that we could find in Scripture boils down to love God with all that you are. Secondly, that you are to love others as yourself. Tony alluded to this in his in his time of prayer this morning. Verse 39 and 40 of this uh, 22nd chapter of Matthew. The second is like it. You see the all caps there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Again, that's an all cap, meaning it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. I didn't remember to look up exactly where that is. I think it's in Deuteronomy. But it means Jesus didn't invent loving your neighbor as yourself. It's always been a part of the command that we would find within Scripture. But Jesus says, loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor all as ourself, you can boil everything that is a command or a law or a statute or an avoid or a be into these two things. When we love others this way, it is really good for them. That's what Greg Flegel tells me. And I'm giving him credit for this because I didn't come up that on my own. What difference does it make in our lives when someone loves us when we know we don't deserve it? What difference does it make in our life when someone that we have treated less than kind loves us? So this, I believe, uh, loving others as ourselves is more difficult than the first commandment because in general, (laughs) we just aren't that lovable. I'm not that lovable. I'll admit that. I've got problems, I've got issues, I've got hang-ups, I've got faults, I've got selfishness, I've got sin in me in such a way that my wife loving me the way she does is, is a gift from God. My children loving me through all of my faults as a father in their life is a gift from God. I am really not that lovable. And you know what? We're in the same boat. You aren't either. We find it incredibly difficult to love others because, as, as uh, Chris said yesterday, is that we see the speck in our brother's eye and ignore the log in our own. We look at other, other people's faults and, and failures and all of their blemishes and we say, <laughs> they don't deserve it. They're not entitled. They're not worth it. We are so flawed and so influenced by the sin in our life that loving others as ourselves seems like it's an impossibility. 
I tried before. It was really, really hard. And that guy, I'll tell you, that guy just impossible. So we, we just quit. We give up. Here's the key. The key is this. The more we love God, the greater our capacity to love others. Do you believe that's true? So here's what I would say. I am certain that I have sinned against probably all of you in some form or fashion. I'm not always aware of how I've sinned against you. And I haven't sinned against you in exactly the same way. But here's what I know. I have sinned against God in absolutely every way conceivably possible. Every way. And yet God loves me with an everlasting love that will never change. It will never fade. It will never be taken away because that's who God is. The more we connect with that kind of love for me and for you personally, the easier it is to love someone else through their faults, through their flaws, through their failures. When our love for God consumes us, we will see ourselves as we really are, not as we think we are. And this will enable us to have a greater love for other people. Why? Because in general, we consider ourselves better and more lovable than we do other people. This is why it's so important for us to love God first. This is why it says in the Bible, do nothing from selfishness or empty deceit, conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, this is our default position to be selfish, to be filled with conceit, to not have humility, to not consider others better than me, but to look for my own interests, not for the interests of others. But when we love God with all that we are, those natural tendencies are reversed and we find ourselves willing to sacrifice for the well-being of other people. Have you ever wondered why some people are willing to sacrifice themselves for others? It's because they've got connected to God's love for them in such a way that that's easy for them to do. So what is Jesus praying for when he teaches us to pray, your will be done? Well, we don't need to pray for God's decreed will because that can't be stopped. That cannot be thwarted. There is no nation. There is no man. There is no entity that can ever stop God's decreed will. So when Jesus teaches us to pray that his kingdom will come, he is teaching us to pray for God's will of command that we have the capacity to disobey and fail to live by, that that will would dominate our lives. That's what he's asking us to pray for. He prays that God's will, he teaches us to pray that God's will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So let me ask this question. How completely is God's commanded will executed in heaven? Yeah, there once was a rebellious group long, long time ago that got kicked out. Remember all that? You know, Lucifer and a third of the angels who were now demons 
etc., etc. God's will is perfectly executed in heaven. That's what we are to pray. God, I pray that I don't fail to obey you today. I know that I will, but I'm praying that I won't. Convict me and burden me and empower me to do better today than I did yesterday because I want to love you with all that I am. So the standard of on earth as it is in heaven can be applied to each of these three key phrases. We are to pray that we would bring glory to his name just as his name has brought glory in heaven where the angels sing without end, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The whole world is filled with his glory. We are to pray that his kingdom would come and be experienced in my life just as the kingdom is experienced in heaven. And we are to pray that his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So this is what we are to pray for before we pray for our needs or before we pray for our relationship with other people, getting into the trespasses and and leading into temptation, the other parts of the model prayer that we've looked at. So here's the prayer. Your kingdom come. Your, excuse me, your, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in me, through me, on earth, as it is in heaven. Would you join me in prayer?